Welcome back to the Mulligan Brothers podcast. I am your host, Jordan Mulligan. Thank you for joining me for motivation, inspiration, and hopefully stories that lead to a more productive life. Today, I am joined by Cal Newport, author of the book Deep Work, which is a book that has helped me and my company tremendously. The author of the book A World Without Email, and also a man who is just an absolute genius, if you ask me, who talks about like brain hacking and has worked in computer science and he's mixed all these things together. And honestly, the way in which he talks, the sort of like the behavioral aspect of it and the uh, way in which we can use our brains to help us succeed and be more productive is game changer, is revolutionary. I'm not kidding. This This deep work stuff, is wild and uh, it's helped us massively. So that is what we're going to do today. Talk to the man, Cal Newport. Um, as always, today's video was made possible at www.mulliganbrothers.com where you can get the Inspire Change t-shirts and hoodies if you want to help support the message and also the new Momentum Mori poster, which is a tool that I've been using to be more productive. It is a life calendar that's got 80 years on it and loads of tiny, tiny little boxes. And each tiny little box on there represents a week of your life. I have mine filled in at 30 years. And every single week when I come down to my fridge and I look at that and I cross one of those weeks off, I'm reminded how precious and important our time is. Um, It is the most precious and important resource that we have. We do not know how many boxes we are going to be filling in, if we're going to even fill in another box. So when I wake up in the morning, I see that on the fridge. I'm constantly reminded to live this day as if it's my last, to live this day with the most productive uh, energy and um, happy energy that I possibly can. And also, you know, to look back and go, you know, I've had a good innings. Um, If I died today, would I be happy with what I did today? And that's how I live my life. That's how I live it. And this this, uh, poster has helped me do that massively. I also couple that with the Mulligan Brothers, the official Mulligan Brothers, not a journal, a no bullshit approach to journaling. When did journaling become so complicated? Why did you need a manual on how to fill your journaling? This journal is a journal that I created that is a way of getting shit done. We have a task list, you have a goals list, and you uh, have an undated date list. And it's just, it, you know, it explains on half a page of how to use it, but it's, it's self-explanatory. You don't need a whole half a book, half of these journals that go out today, half of the pages are explaining how to do it. And to me, that is ridiculous. So anyway, before you head over to www.mulliganmothers.com to help support our projects, because always the profits go back into creating these documentaries on YouTube and also these podcasts, let's jump in to this amazing conversation with Cal Newport, uh, a man that you will not find on social media. The only way of seeing what he's up to is through his reading list, um, his, his reading material, sorry, his books. And also you can head over to his website as well, you will not find him on Facebook, Twitter, so um, Instagram, YouTube, because he doesn't do it, because he leads a life without email, and this is how he does it. It's absolutely amazing. Anyway, let's dive into it. So just for those who don't know, just introduce yourself and what you do. 
Uh, I'm Cal Newport. I'm a computer science professor who also writes about the intersection of technology and culture. Okay, brilliant. And where, like, whereabouts did you grow up? What sort of childhood did you have? No, I was born in Texas. So I was a, I was a Texan for the first seven years of my life. And then we moved to the state of New Jersey, where I grew up in a, grew up in a small town, small town in New Jersey, typical uh, small town public school childhood. So quite ordinary beginnings, at least by American standards. And then, so what, what's the jump into computers and tech and all that? So how did you make the, the leap there? Well, my mom was a computer programmer at a time where that was still a relatively new field. She was also one of the first remote workers. So in the 1980s, we lived in a suburb of Houston that was pretty far from downtown Houston. And she had a computer programming job and she negotiated a remote working setup. And then the way that worked is they gave her a computer to have at our house that she could connect with to the big computers down where she worked and she could do her work from home. And it was very primitive. I mean, you would literally watch the screen fill line by line. Like you would bring in a page and it would go line by line, then you'd update it, then send it back. But we had computers in our house from an early age. And the notion of programming computers was in our house from an early age. So, so at an early age, I began messing around with computers, with programming. And that, that became one of my, one of my main interests, it's just something, something I was doing on the side as a kid that eventually got more serious. So by the time, for example, I was say 15 or 16 years old, when most people had a summer job as a lifeguard or something like this, a teenage, a typical teenage summer job, I was commuting to an office park where I was computer programming, you know, in an office, which was good money, but, but also quite lonely. I started a computer development business in high school. Uh, I was sort of ran out of computer science type courses to take. So my school had to deal with nearby Princeton University where I could go over to Princeton and take computer science courses. So it, it basically became a big part of my life as a, as a young kid. Uh, really interesting. To how, how did you develop a mindset or do you feel like it was always there to turn it into a business and sort of strive for outside of sort of the school realm and, and push it in, in different directions? I mean, the business thing was interesting. It was incredibly formative for me as a 17-year-old, 16, 17, 18-year-old to be running a business with my friend. We, we called it Princeton Web Solutions. We were doing computer development. This was the first dot-com boom, website development in particular. But we figured out pretty quickly, there is people who can do this better than us in India. We had a team in India that was actually doing the work that we were outsourcing to them. And we built out the whole client process so that we were working with the clients and running the process, but weren't doing any coding, weren't doing any graphic design. I don't know where that drive came from. It was just something that had hit me early on. Entrepreneurship, having your own business, taking a big swing. There is an independent streak I had. I, mean, I, I like give it, being given autonomy, being given you know, my own rope to, to hang myself with if things don't go well. And it just clicked. And it became very formative. So, so everything that happened to me since that, so as I left and went to college, there's a lot of very influential things that happened in my life that were built on the experiences I gained running a business at such a young age. So when in, in my world, um, we talk about passion quite a lot, like a passion. I know you kind of spoke about it in, in, in the past. So um, how, how would you... What was pulling you at that point? Like what, what, was, the, what was the thing that was pulling you along? It was interesting to me. 
I, so it's a, there's a lot of challenges and then challenges overcome when you're running a business. Can we get clients? How much are they going to pay us? Can we get bigger clients? Can we expand our business? There, there, there was a thrill to it, these challenges to overcome. I, I like the systematic nature of it. What's our process? I mean, think about this challenge, which is would be foreign to someone young today, but here I am, 17, trying to run a business. Uh, forget smartphones. There weren't even cell phones at this point. Uh, forget email, right? I mean, I was in school. I did not have access to a computer until maybe four or five o'clock each afternoon. I was in, there, there was no mobile computing. There was no way that you could take a quick call or shoot off a quick email. And so we had to figure out, for example, how do you run a business? We have clients signing, you know, five-figure contracts with you when you can't talk to anybody and you're not reachable. So it was, it was interesting, right? It's like, okay, well, we're going to have to build out this client extra net and have this whole process and 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 they have to have a work log where they can see what's going on and these milestones so that they don't need to bother us. And it was all of this type of challenge was really interesting. And it scratched some sort of itch I had. And I don't think the itch was business because since then I have not gone on and started other business. I did not become an entrepreneur. That's not the path I took. So there must've been something more fundamental about challenges and systems and pushing yourself. So there's a, there's a deeper substrate here that I was building on. Yeah, I, th- I feel like you've touched on it in the book, like different, like psycho- psychology, uh, loads of different things. Um, so I definitely want to touch on that. Um, how how did you go from from that to start writing? Then you started writing books for students whilst you was in school yourself. Is that right? Yeah, and you can draw a line from the business to that, because here here is how that unfolded. If you're running a business, as everyone knows, you're going to read a lot of books, right? You have to learn how to do the different aspects of businesses. You get very used to, at that time, it would have been the business section of Barnes & Noble, right? It's, okay, how do I market? How do I run an extranet? How do I run a team? How do I manage my time? All of this, you would go get books by experts. No nonsense. Like, this is what works. This is what doesn't. So I was surrounded by that as a teenager. Then I go off to college, go off to university, right? And I start thinking after about my first year, I want to take this seriously. I want to do this really well. All right, where's the books? And they didn't exist for that audience. I was used to from the business world, like, yeah, you want to be the marketer? Here's what the best marketers do. You need to manage your time. This is what works. They weren't writing books for students that were like that at the time. There, there was a sense in publishing, this would have been the very early 2000s. There was a sense in publishing at the time that to appeal to students, young people in general, you had to be cool. You had to make sure that you weren't being too serious because that would be square. And, and, and so it led to these books with titles like The Naked Roommate. There was another book at the time for college students called Major in Success. And it had a motivational speaker on the cover who was doing like a silly pose. And, and I'm here in college, used to reading serious, non pragmatic nonfiction. Like this is crazy. College students take themselves way too seriously. Like the thing to do here is to take them too seriously. They're not going to be scared off if you get serious. They're going to appreciate being treated like adults. And they don't like all this sort of fluffy, let's try to be cool stuff. They see right through it. And so I just had this idea and it was really clear. Why not write a college advice book like a business book? No naked roommate, no, you know, talking about having uh, the crazy parties and no trying to be cool. Just, okay, you want to be successful in college? Here's what successful students do. Boom, right? And that was the concept. And I, and I had that idea. And by my junior year, my third year at university, I was in New York for a semester, hanging out with an entrepreneur friend of mine. I was telling him about this idea. And he said, hey, stop talking about it. Write it if you want to do it. And I said, all right, I will. <laughs> that's what, and that's what kicked off the book writing career. 
It's funny, I think Steve Jobs says something about looking forward, it's so hard to connect the dots, but looking backwards, it's, just, it's so laid out for you. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with the going forward part. Obviously, it's a lot more difficult. Is, was there anything that, that made you feel, I mean, you were following something you enjoyed and, and striving for something. Do you think that might have been the key to just pushing forward and, and finding the right thing? Because a lot of people... Uh, fear not finding the right thing or not working in the right uh, arena. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is an idea I've thought a lot about. I mean, I, so I wrote a book about this eventually. So my, my 2012 book was called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And it was taking a sort of contrarian look at career advice. How do people end up really passionate about their work? And it actually opens on Steve Jobs' commencement address in 2007, where he gave that connecting the dots analogy. And one of the big arguments of that book is we simplify too much. We simplify too much the path towards work that you're really passionate about. So starting around the time when I was a kid, so starting the early 1990s, when I was in upper grade school, if you go back and do the research, that's where we first see the emergence of this idea, the phrase, follow your passion. Wasn't really a phrase that existed until about the late 1980s or early 1990s. So for my whole childhood, and I think the next generation's childhood, this idea has been around. My argument was, uh, it's more complicated than that. The advice really that people are giving is follow the goal of ending up passionate about your work because it's, it's great to be passionate about your work and to not be makes everything much more difficult, but it got condensed to follow your passion. And the issue with that I pointed out was it presupposes that everyone's wired to do something and that the primary action necessary to unlock passion for your work is to match your work to this pre-existing trait. So it's all a match game. You were wired inside to be a writer of advice books. So all that matters is you figure that out and then you'll be passionate. And when I look back at the research, it's more complicated that passion tends nine times out of 10 to cultivate over time. The initial match, like what I do is important, but it is just one step. There might be many, many different paths that can lead you to passion. So, you know, pick one that's reasonable. What's important is what you do once you pick one. And that was the whole idea of that book. And I'm probably a great uh, case study of that is in the moment what you're doing is what is something I can do that is available to me that works with sort of existing skills or talents I already have and crucially will open up more interesting opportunities if and when I get good at it. Now, there is going to be a lot of things that probably satisfy those criteria in a lot of people's lives. Don't sweat which one you choose. Take one of those and then focus on, let me now go all in on this. Over time, passion begins to grow. Commitment to that work begins to grow. The meaning begins to grow. And so this has been a big part of my, my uh, ideas on, on career advice is shifting the mindset away from the passion exists entirely in the beginning. So you just have to find the right job to unlock it versus passion is something that you have to very carefully grow over time so that five years from now, 10 years from now, you're really loving where you are. It's a more realistic assessment of how it works. And so uh, it's definitely something I've thought a lot about. Got some flack for writing a book that said, follow your passion is bad advice, but it, it was fun to put that idea out there. I've never heard it. So, I mean, I really love that. So for, I get this question quite a lot. Um, how, how do I find my passion? How, so what, what would be your advice to somebody like that to explain to them that it's about the patience, it's about growing it? Yeah, well, I mean, let's start with Steve Jobs. So the reason I opened with Steve Jobs is that 
he he gave this commencement address in Stanford. It was very famous, right? It's been viewed millions and millions of times. And and it was interpreted basically as him saying, yeah, follow your passion. In fact, I, I went back and found the Stanford Daily News newspaper from the next day. The headline of the article about Jobs' speech was Jobs encourages graduates to follow their dreams. Uh, yet, if you go back and look at Steve Jobs' life, that's not what he did. So, so I, I went back and I really excavated Steve Jobs' life. This was before the Isaacson biography. This was before, uh, so I, and I was talking to actual people who knew him, right? Uh, in the, the period immediately leading up to him and Waz bringing the Apple One circuit board to the bite shop in Mountain View and really kicking off what became Apple Computer, in the, in the period immediately leading up to that, there is nothing about Jobs' life that would indicate that he had a strong passion for technology entrepreneurship. I mean, he was really into the notions of Zen, which had just been brought there in meditation, a lot of self-discovery. Uh, he had been doing some work for Atari and other places, but was actually losing jobs because he cared so little about it that he would just disappear for a month at a time. They're like, sorry, I can't keep you employed. Like he was all over the place searching. Nothing about it. If you went back into a time machine, you know, one month before the Apple One board and said, like, what is your passion? You got to follow your passion, right? Steve Jobs would not have ended up started an Apple computer. If you'd gone back and convinced him at that time, you have to follow your passion. He would have ended up probably like a very popular meditation center, uh, meditation teacher at the Zen center that he was visiting a lot. Like that's probably what he would have said his passion was at the time. He stumbled into this, right? So they, they, they were, they were hanging out at this uh, hacker collective and, and they were seeing this, this, there's this original chip details don't matter, but this sort of the first microprocessor had come along uh, it was meant actually to be a general purpose semiconductor. So it could play the role of a bunch of conductors, but hobbyists were like, hey, you could build a computer with this. And and Waz built this thing and they saw the reaction and he's like, hey, we should try to sell this. And, and it kind of escalated from there. But what do we learn from his story? Which was, it's not about I'm meant to do this. So let me figure that out in advance and go after it. It's, you know, here is something that is interestingly, let me, let me go after this interesting thing passionately and then see what comes next. And so the whole framework I advise to people, especially in that book, is that it's all about what I call career capital. As you build rare and valuable skills, you get more leverage over your work. You get more leverage over how you work, when you work, what you work on. If you apply that leverage, you can make your career better and better, something that resonates more, something that's more passionate and away from things that's more drudgery. So choose something that is interesting, fits well with pre-existing skills or inclinations or talents, and that opens up interesting opportunities if and when you do it well. And then like a craftsperson, try to do it as well as possible. Get as good as possible, as quick as possible, and use that as leverage to keep evolving it towards more and more interesting places. That's the framework that nine times out of 10 explains how people who today would say, I love my work, how they got there. Yeah, I think what, what happens a lot is we look at the successful entrepreneur, Steve Jobs, one of the, the greatest of all time, and we're looking at his built passion. Like, like you say, like he... We're looking at the end result of that and we're missing everything in between. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a, a leap of faith, I guess, in, in certain aspects as well is, is, uh, would be good as well. I think um, we feel like time is so precious and we don't want to waste it. And I think we all get caught up. And something we'll touch on as well is like the social media like side of things, like everything's happening so fast, apparently on, online. Um, and it's this appearance that we need to act quick and um, hopefully we can go through some of that. I've made some notes on it. 
Uh, one thing I did want to talk on, which is slightly away from this, is the the deep work um, flow state. Super interesting. We've at the moment we're editing a documentary and we trying to run a business alongside it, and it's really difficult. It's that con- constantly the train of thought's been broken. Um, so yeah, what is deep work or, or flow state, and how does it apply to the majority of people? So deep work came as a response to that that book on career advice because I wrote that book on career advice saying get really good at things. And so then people said, well, how do I get really good at things? And a big part of that answer was deep work. And so it's why it was the follow-up to that 2012 book. And so deep work is just my term for where you are concentrating without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. You're giving some of your full attention. But that without distraction piece is a key attribute of the definition. Without distraction means no context shifting. This is something that a lot of people don't realize. And it causes a lot of issues in terms of actually trying to do cognitive work, which is we know multitasking is bad. We, we've known this since the early 2000s that if I'm literally trying to do two things simultaneously, okay, I can't really do them simultaneously. I'm switching back and forth. I'll do both worse. We know this. It's why if I'm working on editing a documentary or writing an article, I'm not going to keep my email inbox open while I'm doing it, or I'm not going to be on a phone call while I'm trying to write. I can't actually do both. We all recognize that. And we, we, we basically don't do that anymore. What we don't realize for the most part, however, is that when you do a quick check of something, so you have to glance at email, you have to glance at Slack, you glance at what's going on in social media on your phone, and then come back to the main thing. There is a long after effect of that quick check. It could last 10 or 15 minutes after that check happens. What, what happens from a neurological perspective is that we're slow to completely change our cognitive context. So when we see something that's highly salient, like a a emotionally affecting social media post or emails that we need to get back to these people eventually, but we can't get back to them right now, but we know they're waiting for something. It initiates a context shift in the brain. There's networks that are being inhibited, other networks that are being amplified. So we we start this expensive context shift and these can take a long time to actually finish. We don't let it finish because we're just glancing. Then we come back to editing the documentary or working on our article. Now we're trying to abort that context shift and then get our brain back to the context of what we're working on. And so what we end up with is this collision of, of initiated, aborted, initiated context shifts, the effect of which is cognitive capacity reduces, cognitive fatigue raises, and a background hum of anxiety is enhanced. So what is happening right now to a lot of people who are doing high-level knowledge work is that they think they're editing a documentary full-time. They think they're writing an article full-time because these quick checks of email and Slack and their phone, they only take 30 seconds and they don't have it open at the same time. But each of those quick checks is leaving this residue. And before that residue can clear, which might take 15 minutes before you're fully back in the context of the work, you check it again. And then you check it again. And so we're putting ourselves in this self-enforced state of reduced cognitive capacity. It feels terrible and we're exhausted it's probably the feeling you're having trying to document, uh, work on a documentary while having to context shift to all these business-related matters. So deep work is I'm not only focusing on something hard, I'm doing it for an extended amount of time with none of those context shifts. I'm basically avoiding those things that brings down my capacity so I can actually operate at high capacity. And I think it's a critical behavior for success in any sort of non-trivial knowledge work is the ability to give each thing attention until you reach a stopping point. So it can be your full cognitive context is the thing you're working on. This is how you unlock the full potential of your brain, avoid fatigue, avoid anxiety, 
one thing at a time, giving each thing its attention due, not having this background interleaved concurrent quick checks of all these channels simultaneously. I think that is the key, the satisfaction actually producing stuff that you're proud of. Uh, so these past few days, um, I, I was like that. So like the manager would come in and ask us uh, what we thought of something. It'd be such a trivial thing. Um, and I thought I was still in like that flow state, but I can't explain how great the last two days have been where I've blocked. So I've used some of the things you've spoken about, like blocking and stuff like that. So I'll, we'll talk about that, but um, where people just can't come in the room so we can get the documentary done. It's not a pro- It's game changing. Like it, it was so amazing. Um, so yeah, just to, just to hammer home, how, how damaging to a task can be context shifting? Uh, it, like, like you say, it, it seems trivial, but it, I've noticed a huge effect. Well, it, it significantly reduces both your capacity, right? So, so if we look at just the quality of what you're producing is lower because you're not, you're not attacking this with a full focus cognitive capacity. Uh, and then it raises fatigue. And a lot of office workers know this. They just don't know why it's happening. But it's that effect where you get to two o'clock in the afternoon and you're just done with trying to do anything that's even remotely hard. And we, we often miss a, miss a sign that like, maybe I'm tired or maybe I'm not, but you're not probably that tired. You've just been sitting in a chair all day. Your brain is exhausted. Why is your brain exhausted? Because it is incredibly draining to do these switches. We're just not evolved for it. We, 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 we did not grow up in an environment. We did not evolve in an environment in which every six minutes we were jumping back and forth between a different, highly salient task. We, we were doing one thing for a while. And then something else we would do for a while. We're, we're hunting today. Hey, for the next three hours, we're walking through the woods in the context of looking, looking at trails and listening for the animal. You know, we're doing that for a very long time. We, so our brain really can't handle it. So you're, you're, you're producing worse stuff and then you just run out of cognitive steam much earlier. It's why people, by the way, who have to do sort of Olympic level feats of cognition. So the incredible elite cognition where I say Olympic level in the sense of you're pushing your brain to the limits of what the humans can do. Uh, Literary novelists, chess players, uh, mathematicians, they are incredibly careful about insulating their giant swaths of time from the rest of the world, from distraction, from phones, from social media, et cetera, because they can't work at the elite level. Just like if you took an elite level athlete and said, we're going to, we're going to, uh, you're going to be a little dehydrated. You're going to smoke a little bit, you know, something like this at the elite level, you're going to drop from gold medal to out of the metal contention. So we really see this effect taken seriously by elite thinkers. You know, elite thinkers aren't on social media all the time. Elite think- thinkers, uh, like I'm thinking the novelist, Dave Eggers, he writes on a laptop with no internet connection, unreachable from nine to five. He can't do his novels if he was in a state of context shifting. But I think this same commitment that elite thinkers have needs to trickle down to the rest of us because we're, we're leaving a huge amount of productivity and satisfaction on the table. Definitely. I also think um, it, the idea of uh, procrastination is like possibly, for, for me especially, like just that quick glance, I used to think that was in my head, that's procrastination. It's, it's taking me away from my work. But that not feeling like you're getting anything done for the day, I feel like comes from switching those tasks. Like it really does. I, it, it, is, is procrastination something you've, you've done anything on in the past? I mean, procrastination is an interesting one. There's, there's different aspects to it. And I don't know all of them, but there's two aspects I like to point out. 
So there's just a, a pure energy aspect. So the reason why very little good gets done in the office from two to five, for example, is that you've exhausted your brain from the context shifts. So your, your, your brain is just crying uncle at that point. I can't sit down and do this hard thing. I'm out of fuel. So there's an energy piece to it. Uh, another twist on procrastination that I've been looking into off and on, and I think is interesting to keep in mind, is if we're talking about a big project, you're just not getting going on it. And a lot of this came out of, by the way, my work I used to do with students. Sometimes what's going on here is that your mind doesn't trust your plan. So I just want to throw that angle in there as well. One of the defining features of the human brain, one of the reasons that we can separate from other animals is that the human brain can both conceive of plans, right? So abstractly conceive of a plan and then evaluate that plan. Is it good or bad? And if it's good, you feel motivation to do it. And if it's bad, you feel dismotivation, right? So this is very important. Again, if we, if we go back to the Paleolithic, you know, the emergence of the modern Homo sapiens, you might be thinking through like, well, maybe what I should do is charge this mammoth and whatever, jump on it and stab it through the eye to kill it. Well, the plan evaluation apparatus is like, no, 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 that's a bad plan. <laughs> I'm not, you're not going to feel motivated for that. And then you have another idea like, well, maybe we should throw spears from far away. Uh, and and you feel motivation to do it. Some procrastination is basically your brain rejecting your plan. And, and so this, I first saw this with students where they'd feel procrastination to study. And it's because that was not a, that is just an incredibly vague thing. Their mind's like, I don't know how to evaluate this. Like, what do you mean by study? And a lot of really successful students I, I, I looked at for my books, uh, they never used the word study. It was much more concrete. I'm, I'm going to take these chapters and we're going to do a quiz and recall here. And this works really well. and It's going to prepare me well. If your mind trusts the plan you have, you're much less likely to feel dismotivated. This also comes up a lot, I think, when people take on ambitious projects, which I think is good. But if you haven't actually done the work of figuring out how that type of project actually unfolds, what's really needed to succeed, your brain knows, look, you don't have a plan here that I trust that's going to lead us to success. So no, I'm not going to give you motivation to do this. And it's why there's a lot of novels that last three chapters before people give up. It's because they got excited about the idea of writing a novel, but didn't actually do the work of figuring out what would it really take to break into the, the into the world of novel writing. They just want to do their thousand words in the morning and feel motivated and post it on Instagram. Their brain's not tricked. It's like, I don't see a plan here that makes sense. I'm not going to invest energy if I don't see a plan I trust. So I think that's a big part of it as well. Your brain is smarter than you think, which is sort of an ironic statement. Uh, if it doesn't really think you have a good plan that's going to achieve something worth achieving, you're not going to feel very motivated. That can feel a lot like procrastination. If you're enjoying this episode at Mulligan Brothers Podcast with Cal Newport, please head over to mulliganbrothers.com where you can get the best motivational clothing in the world. And also the Not A Journal is going to be restocked very soon. And lastly, the new poster, the Memento Mori poster, the Remember That You Are Mortal poster is now live on the website with the frame. Anyway, guys, let's jump back into the podcast episode with Cal Newport. I love it. Go, going against yourself, um, it's quite, quite interesting. Um, the the one thing that's talking about the context shift in you've spoken about and you've you've written a is it a blocking so like a planner is it a, I'm probably yeah. hatchet in that yeah so um, so you, you feel that bl like blocking and uh, getting like fixed times to do stuff is like one of the best ways to sort of handle with context shifting yeah I'm a big fan of time blocking which was an idea 
that was in my book deep work. And then last year I released a, a planner just for doing time blocking called the time block planner. And the idea is you take your work hours and you give every minute a job. So you say, here's my time available. Okay. Here's meetings and calls. What am I doing with all the other time? I'm making a plan for that in advance. And we call it blocking because you actually, you have these columns with the hours on the rows. You're drawing blocks like this 30 minutes. I'm working on this, this 90 minute, you draw the block and you label it. There's a couple of things that really help here. One is uh, it puts you in the sequential mindset. I'm doing one thing at a time until I'm done, then I'm moving on to the next. So yeah, I need to do email. Well, there better be a block for that. And when I get to that block, I can do email. But right now I'm in the block for writing. So that's what I'm doing. I'm writing. So it puts you into a sequential mode. Uh, two, it allows you to actually move around the chess pieces here on the proverbial chessboard of your time and be like, what's the best way to make use of the day in front of me? Well, you know, I'm going to be packed in the afternoon. So I better get after it real early to try to get this thing done. And there's only a 30 minute block between these two meetings. So why don't I wait till that block to follow up on X, Y, and Z, which is pretty low, low energy, but it needs to get done. You're being much more intentional. So when you care about what you do with your day, uh, you're, you're going to get a lot more out of it. And then there's this ancillary third benefit is you learn because you make these blocks, you make these plans. If you're new to it, your plan's going to explode. Why? Because everyone thinks that things take 50% less than they actually do. So you begin to pick up over time as you have to fix these time block plans again and again, concrete visceral feedback on how long things actually take, how much time things actually take. And this leads to a lot of positive developments. A, you start on things earlier because now you feel in your bones how much time it actually takes to get this done. And B, you begin to call back your schedule. You have a much better understanding of, well, how much is really on my plate? If I'm doing this, this, and this, and now that I know how big those blocks are and how hard they're to fit them in, I realize it's not all going to work. So I need to stop doing this, hand this off to someone else and delay this for another month. You begin to be able to make data-driven decisions about what's on your plate. So there's like a lot of good secondary benefits that all come from this primary commitment let me actually give every minute of my day a job in advance, as opposed to the alternative, which I call the list-based reactive method, which is in between things that are on your calendar, you react to things that come in over email and Slack and then see if you can make some progress on some sort of to-do list. It's a two to three X times difference in terms of how much you get done if you time block versus the list reactive method. Wow. Um, I, I feel for me, I, I naturally started blocking when my son was born uh, well, a couple of years after he was born and he, when I would get home, um, the finishing the day and get, and get in there for a certain time was really bad to put him to bed. So then we decided I'll finish that day at 6 p.m. So then the blocking had to fall in place that between these hours, the work had to get done. Um, I'd be interested to hear what, what does your blocking look like for yourself, like an average day? Uh, so I do uh, work normal work hours. So roughly speaking, I do something like nine to five. Uh, that's my stake in the sand. And then I work backwards and say, okay, what can I get done with that? Right. And so when I'm blocking, I'm blocking normal work hours and, and basically with a few exceptions, but basically everything I do professionally happens between those normal work hours. And that's a really nice fencing on my time. And, and it shows that, okay, when you're time blocking a fixed amount of time, there's a lot more you can get done than you think when you're really intentional, because I, I do wear multiple hats. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, pretty well-published professor. I write books. I, uh, I write articles for, for publications like The New Yorker. Um, I have a podcast that's, that's twice a week. You know, there's a lot I do. And I fit it roughly into that nine to five. So, so it does show that once you get intentional, there's a lot more you can get out of your time because so much of it is sort of wasted and over uh, a lot of overhead. But that's how I work. So I'm like, what's my block day? When my day is over, I have a shutdown routine. 
In fact, my time block planner has a little checkbox that says shut down. You, you check it. It's a, it's, a, it's a real reminder, like an actual tangible tactile reminder to your mind. I have shut down and you shut down your shutdowns family time. And I've been able to do a lot. Uh, by the way, I call that approach fixed scheduled productivity. Fix when you want to work and then work backwards from that to say, okay, what can I fit into there? It's a really great way to do it because you are then in control of, you know, how much time you work, but you're surprised. It's surprising what you can do, how it sharpens the mind, how it sharpens your priorities, what you say no to, what you'd say yes to. And, and it's a really fantastic approach as you fix in advance. And this is when I want to work and then ask, all right, now what? I, I love the benefit like you're talking about of sharpening the mind. Is, is there anything else to having a solid finish of the day and not taking that work home and, email into the middle of the night and is there any other benefits to it? Well, there's anxiety that comes with not shutting down because our brain obviously is worried about what David Allen would call open loops. Uh, There's things that I'm responsible for or I need to do and I haven't. If, If that's just being kept track of in your brain, it drains your energy and makes you anxious. So to me, a good shutdown routine is one that is focused on exactly one thing, ensuring that there is no open loops. There is nothing that your brain has to keep track of in the evening. And, and so for me, a shutdown routine is what I'm going to do is it, all of the different inboxes. So email inboxes, but physical inboxes. Uh, my planner has pages every day for like capturing things that need to get processed. I make sure all of that gets moved into uh, my task systems. It's, it's written down. It's somewhere it's going to be seen. I look at it every day. I check my calendar. I check my plan for the next day. Uh, it's, it's really a process of telling your brain, there is nothing right now that's a problem that we have to work on tonight. There's nothing right now that we missed that is going to need a response or that we might forget about. Uh, it's all written down in places where we can trust. Then I'm going to do this shutdown check. Now, the way this works is then later, when you're new to this, what's going to happen is your brain is still going to say, oh, I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. And your temptation will be like, well, let me convince my brain and go through. No, no, I checked that. I checked this. Don't worry about it. But that kind of keeps the loops alive. If you've checked off this box that says shutdown complete or set a phrase like shutdown complete, all you have to tell your brain is, I checked that box. I said that phrase. I would not have done that if I was not satisfied that there's nothing I need to worry about tonight. So it's a way of calming your brain without actually engaging in a discussion about the particular work things that it's worried about. You do this for a week or two, your brain stops trying to bring you into that discussion. It, it, it becomes a just a natural physiological reaction. Check, check, stressful. And so it's, it's, it's a fantastic way to actually reclaim your evenings away from work to put that anxiety aside to let you, you know, let your mind be a lot more present. I feel like this links perfectly into your book then with the, I heard you speak about this, with the emails, um, because I have this natural feeling straight away. If I check that inbox and I see a list of emails that need to be answered, my mind's there all the time. Like it's so hard to pull away from that inbox in my mind. Um, so I, I, feel, I feel like you said that email is one of the most, is it destru- destructive or like negative things for your mind? So yeah, yes. And, and let me I'll just qualify it briefly. The tool is fine. So, you know, this is now coming to my most recent book, A World Without Email. The tool spread in the 1990s for very reasonable reasons. It replaced fax machines, voicemails, and memos. This was communication that was already happening in offices and in between offices. And email is just a better technology to do it. It's, it's much, much better to email a contract as an attachment than it is to fax it. 
right? It's just clearly a superior uh, technology. Also, to send you something in an email versus leaving it as a voicemail that you then have to go and punch in a code and try to listen to, it's just clearly better. So it's spread in the 90s for that reason. I'm glad it exists for that reason. I don't want to use fax machines. I don't want to go back to voicemail pin codes. The real villain, sort of the villain of this book is a style of collaboration that email enabled and that quickly spread. Now that, that style of collaboration I call the hyperactive hive mind. It says, well, now that we have really low friction digital communication tools, in addition to just sending our faxes over email, in addition to just taking the voicemails we would have left on your, on your answering machine and sending it on an email, we can actually work out most collaborative work, most coordination with just unscheduled back and forth ad hoc messages. You just everything can start just being worked out with these with these back and forth ad hoc messages. That style of collaboration has been devastating for the productivity and mental health of office workers everywhere. Because why? If most things are being worked out with these unscheduled back and forth uh, email chains, there is a constant stream of unpredictable messages arriving that really do require you to read and respond to relatively quickly. Because if this message is part of a back and forth chain of six messages, that's going to resolve a question that needs to be resolved today. Like we're trying to figure out when to book an interview, you can't wait three or four hours. You need to see and get each of those back pretty quickly for this conversation to actually get done in time. Well, let's say we now have 12 to 15 of these ongoing asynchronous unscheduled conversations happening. There is no recourse, but to have to check these inboxes all the time. Not because you have bad habits, not because you're addicted to email, not because your willpower is, is bad, but no, it's necessary for how we're collaborating. I have to keep all these back and forth threads moving. Why is that a problem? For the reason we talked about earlier in the interview, every time you check, you're inducing a context shift. So that, let's connect all those dots, basically. Email replaced the fax machine. Once it was there, we started shifting to this very convenient way of collaborating where we just do these asynchronous conversations. This had this side effect that we have to constantly check our inboxes. Constantly checking our inboxes puts us into a constant state of context shifting. Suddenly, we are strung out. We're exhausted. We're miserable. We can't actually get anything done. And so we accidentally completely sabotage the attention capital present in all of the minds in the knowledge sector by introducing this tool that had a very innocent purpose, which was now we don't have to deal with unjamming fax machines anymore. I'm... A guilty for this so the, I collaborate with the team um, not through email but through instant messaging and I'll con- like if I've got a thought in my head I'll throw it out there and how what what can I do what's the what's the best way to sort of work around that so the, the key idea is we can't solve this with just better habits about how we interact with our inboxes that's what we have tried for the last 20 years is well if we're just better, you know, about subject lines and how often we check email and expectations about responses. None of this will solve the issue because the reason we check the inbox all the time is that's the only way. If the hyperactive hive mind is how you're coordinating, it's the only way, the only option. If everything is being worked out ad hoc messaging, it is a problem if you don't check all the time. Things will grind to a halt. Decisions that have to get made by a certain time won't get made. It really is a problem. So I can't just individually say, I will check email less. I will write better subject lines. You can't check it less. There's 15 different asynchronous conversations going on and 12 of them aren't going to get done in time if you wait three hours until you join them, right? So this is why just changing our habits doesn't get there. So what is the solution? We got to get rid of the hive mind. We have to replace it and specifically replace it and say, okay, for each of the types of things we do as a company or a team, here is, and we'll work on this together. Here are our new rules, our new systems, our new guidelines for how this collaboration works. 
where does the information come in? Where do we store it? When and how do we communicate about this? Like at what times, through what mediums? Where does this information go once we're done? We have to actually put in place specific concrete alternatives to just rock and rolling on email or Slack for each of the things we do again and again as a team or as an organization. It's the only way to actually solve this problem. Because as long as there is no consensus for how you do your work, other than just, I'll grab you on here when I need it, nothing is going to keep us away from having to check those all the time. Yeah, I feel like I'm shooting myself in the foot. And and a lot of the time, I feel like I'm offloading work, but it's probably doing the absolute opposite. Um, A digital detox, that was really interesting sort of concept to me. I know you've done, like you've gone through like studies of it and stuff like what... Is it something that we should be doing, digital detoxes and, and trying to stay away from social media? Yeah, so let's put a clear dividing line because it will help us think about these issues. Let's put a clear dividing line between work-related communication technologies and non-work-related communication technology. Because I've dealt with both in different books. So we're, we're thinking about the world of work. We're thinking about email. We're thinking about Slack. That's what I dealt with in my most recent book. That's what we were just talking about. The book I published a few years ago, however, Digital Minimalism, was working on or looking at tools in our personal life. So social media, our phones, et cetera, like life outside of work. In that realm, suddenly the individual response really becomes very important. So when it comes to why we're checking email so much, we have to, as a team, change our rules for how we collaborate. Otherwise, I have no recourse. I have to check it. When it comes to me looking at social media too much on my phone, unrelated to work, now the locus of control is coming back towards the individual. That's where we're going to have the, the biggest, shortest impact is dramatically changing your individual relationship to your tool. This would not work in the world of email. If I dramatically changed my relationship to email, uh, that's going to be a problem if no one else does too, because they haven't and they need me to respond or we can't get back to the client. But when it comes to me checking Twitter, that's, I can make a change and get an immediate benefit. And it's not, I'm not enmeshed in a system of other people need me to be on Twitter. So in that book, Digital Minimalism, I argued, we have to be much more intentional about our technology use. You have to know what you care about and what you want to spend time on. Then you work backwards and say, how do I want to use tech to support these things I care about? Once you know which tech you're using and why you're using it, it's much easier to put rules around it. You know, oh, I'm, I'm using Facebook because only really because Facebook groups, because I belong to this group of other triathletes and it, I'd say an important group to me. And I, I need to know like when the training schedule is, oh, if that's why I'm using Facebook, now it's real easy to see, well, I don't need it on my phone and I don't need to look at the news feed. And so I'm going to put it on my computer and I'm going to put in a plugin that scrubs the news feed clean. And all I use it for is checking this group. And if all I'm doing is checking this group, I only need to do that once a week. It takes 15 minutes. Great. I get that benefit and, and Facebook has no other footprint in my life. Like, so when you know why you're using a tool, like what you're trying to get out of it, you can put rules around it. And, and suddenly the cost benefit ratio is way, way in your advantage. And so, yeah, I talk about in that book doing this 30 day declutter. And the idea is you just take 30 days away from most of these optional tools, these personal technology tools. And during that time, you very aggressively try to answer the question of what do I actually want to spend my time doing? I mean, you actually go out there and try things, you experiment, you sign up for things, you join things, you go to things, and then you also reflect. You just think, let me try to figure out my life. Like, what do I want to do? What do I really want to spend my time doing? And then at the end of that 30 days, here's a critical part. You rebuild your digital life from scratch. All right, now that I know what I'm all about, what do I want to use to support that and what are my rules? 
and you come out of that experience with a completely different relationship with your tools. This is much more effective than trying to just come at it from a negative perspective and say, I use Twitter too much. I'm going to try to use Twitter less. Good luck. We know that's not going to be very successful. But if you instead have this crystal clear image of what your life wants to be, you can feel it. Like, I want my life to be like that. And you have a plan for how you use technology to make your life like that. And that plan doesn't involve Twitter. Now it's much easier to not be using Twitter because what you're doing is not just trying to stay away from something bad. You're instead trying to pursue something very appealing. And that's a much more stronger psychological motivator. I, I think um, the pressures of social media, like trying to, at the moment, there's a lot of like trying to share your lifestyle. If you don't share it, it didn't happen. The, the, the ego comes into it. What did you see when you had, when you did the studies? Like what, what were the results? So with social media, for example, I found that, and, and I should qualify the study was I had about 1600 people at least initiate this. Not everyone made it through, but about 1600 people initiated going through this process. And I used the reports to help inform the book. Maybe about half the people, this is rough, but half the people came out of this exercise, rebuilt their life, rebuilt their technological life around what they cared about. About half the people had no social media in their life when they were done with this. They just, when they looked at the things they cared about, uh, none of them really required them to be on a social media platform. The other half of the people had some sort, at least one social media platform was reintroduced back into their life because there's a way in which it supported something they really cared about. But because they were working backwards from this is what I want out of this tool so they could then put clear rules on it, most of those people who brought some social media back in their life did not bring it back to their phone. Because once they knew, oh, here's the real value I get out of this tool, they realized, oh, this has nothing to do with self-documenting. This has nothing to do with having a, a ready source of distraction when on board. And so uh, it became something that was on their computer that they used for very specific purposes. And so there was definitely a significant move away from, I think, the, the, the two biggest uses of these platforms right now, which is some combination of um, performative self-definition and distraction. And by distraction, I mean like the complete avoidance of any discomfort, boredom, or, or time alone with your own thoughts, right? Those two uses of social media basically disappeared for people who made it through this process. Uh, what does that do for, do for somebody? Like being able to then, then get in touch with that sort of uh, emotional self? It unlocks everything. Uh, we, we underestimated, especially for young people who, who've had social media since they were, you know, in their young adolescence, we underestimated the importance of reflection. So time alone with our own thoughts is where we make sense of our life. It's where we confront the things we don't like. And it's where we try to make sense of the things that resonate and figure out why they resonate. It's where we build this structure for understanding our life, who we are and what we're trying to do that we keep updating and complicating as we have new experiences and new information. And all of this takes mental time. It just takes time when you're on a walk and you're thinking, you're driving and you're thinking, you're waiting in line and you're thinking. And it's where we begin to, to build our lives. We build who we are. We figure out what we want. We, we, we see the challenges we need to face. This gets taken away when you get in the habit of, I don't like being alone with my own thoughts. I don't like boredom. Swipe. You know, ooh, that's a little uncomfortable. Tap. When we do that, we lose all of that time we need to define ourselves, figure out our lives, and figure out what we're all about. And so it's almost as if for a lot of people they are able to emerge into a fully formed personhood for the first time once they take this out of their life as a constant presence. And, and I'm not even really being hyperbolic about it. 
what you have when you're taking every down moment and using this phone is what you have is this sort of weird shattered simulacrum of a personhood where it's just a bunch of these uh, liquid images of yourself, different impressions, careful curation, all based off of this sort of tactile feedback of likes and unlikes and retweets and unretweets and attacks or promotions and what emojis are being used and how is this being received. And it's this weird fragmented self that has no depth to it. That's not rooted on anything. And you, you can't build a resilient life on that. You can't build a meaningful life on that. And when you replace that with thought and you figure out yourself and what you're all about, it's a completely different experience of the world. It's like you're coming from 2D into 3D. Uh, you're coming from dark into light. It's leaving Plato's cave in the Republic. And I, I, I'm being a little hyperbolic, but not really for a lot of people. That is what it feels like when they get their mind back and they get more used to their mind, the good, the bad, the stuff they're afraid of, the stuff they're proud of. And they figure that all out. You can't get around that. You can't, you can't distract your way around that. We do that with our phone today and other parts of history. We've done it with other substances. We, we forget that when prohibition came to the, the United States, it was in part because uh, we were consuming a massive amount of alcohol to get around of the, the dislocation and discomfort of the rise of industrialization and the change of society. We were trying to escape it. We're doing the same thing today. We've just replaced the bottles with screens, but it gets us to a similar place. You can't avoid yourself what's going on, what you like, what you don't like. It's in the confrontation of that that you actually build the meaningful life. And it requires you to put these things in their place. The, the thing that concerns me is I would say, even for myself, my generation, um, the, the likes, like the, the, what you're describing is a portion of my life. But for the generation after me, it's some of their, those kids, it's like all of their life. Like it is this all they know. Do you feel, do you think it's going to reach a boiling point or do you think that it needs action, like direct action with it? So my, my optimistic theory is this moment that we've emerged in a, roughly the last decade where we see the emergence of these giant platform monopolies built on these attention economy models. So the, the, the Facebook and the Instagrams, the Twitters, and now TikTok has entered that fray. Um, the idea where this is this dominant piece of our technological and cultural lives, I don't think it's a permanent, I don't think it's a permanent state. I, I actually think the, the position of cultural dominance that these platforms has is quite precarious. Uh, they probably are already past their peak of cultural influence. They, they just don't realize it yet. And in other words, what I'm saying is five or 10 years from now, I don't think we're going to have three or four giant social media companies and everyone spends their time using those social media networks. It's going to be, it's a particular moment in time that we're going to move past. One of my big arguments for why this is the case is the social media companies, they, they originally had a network effect argument. So their argument was, if you're Facebook in 2012, is you want to connect to people you know. You can do that over the internet. Facebook makes it easy, though. We have this very nice interface, and most of the people you know are on Facebook. And so we have a, a sort of monopoly because I'm not going to join another network if my cousin's not on there. But if my cousin's on here, then that's useful, right? So they have this network effect uh, um, benefit. And they were offering something that was pretty unique, which was, oh, we have the internet enables connections around the world. Let's make sense of that, make it easy for you to connect to people. They left that model. They left that model right around 2012, where they shifted. Uh, uh, this is when they shifted from trying to build their, their user base to try to get more active user minutes from their user base. They had to do this because they're going public. They had to get their revenue numbers higher. So the, the initial public offering would be better received. They brought on Sheryl Sandberg to figure out how to do this. And they shifted away from this model of Facebook as a place to connect to the people you know. 
and they shifted to the newsfeed model. Okay, it's going to be a source of distraction. You all are just in our matrix style factory producing content for, and data for free. We will chop it all up with algorithms, create this hyper palatable slurry of newsfeed type this, uh, you know, nuggets, and you can just infinitely scroll past them. So we, we, are, we are something you can tap when you're bored. And our algorithms have selected this stuff. So again, like the matrix, we pulled it out of the minds of hundreds of millions of users and we chopped it up and, and it's optimized to press some buttons and you'll feel something and it'll be distracting and whatever. This made sense in the short term because now you could use Facebook all the time. Like it, it, it's something that's always there. It's not just, oh, I need to see, you know, if uh, Jordan has posted something on his wall, let me go to his wall. No, it's like this, this feed is always here. Instagram has the same model. TikTok just threw off all the social aspects and just like, let's purify this model. The issue is now they're competing with every other source of entertainment. So it's no longer, oh, we offer something that no one else can, which is the people you know are here and we'll connect you to it. It's like, no, this is a source of entertainment. There's other sources of entertainment though, like what you're doing right now, podcasting, right? Okay, this is, I can find a podcast on something I really care about, people I care about, talking about people I care about. Look at the streamer wars, hundreds of billions of dollars being invested into incredibly low cost to to, to view uh, super high production value movies and TV shows and series and all of this stuff is on our fingertips now. And what happened to digital online connection? Well, everyone just moved that over to text message threads. Yeah, they're like, okay, Okay, I guess I'll just I'll use you know either WhatsApp, which is why Facebook bought it, or text message threads. I don't really need a, a special network to do that anymore. So I, I think social media is a very precarious place. The people are like I mean, yeah, Twitter and Facebook like touches some buttons and it's hyper palatable. But I also like this podcast I'm listening to, and I also like you know the Marvel stuff on Disney Plus, and um, it's competing with that. And actually, this stuff feels a little bit better quality, and and this stuff is kind of making me feel bad. So that's my optimism. Uh, I'm not bullish on the future of these giant, these particular giant platforms as like for the next 50 years are going to be dominating our discourse. I know. I completely agree. It's, I mean, when you talk about Facebook, like I feel like with uh, my group of friends and maybe even my generation, it just snapped like that. It went completely overnight. Um, just, yeah, just switched on to something else. Um, I heard you talk about this on the, on the Lex Friedman was, um, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations, um, which, yeah, really interesting to me. Well, I mean, it comes up a lot in motivational psychology. It's one of the foundational ideas uh, of motivational psychology, which is this notion, they call it the locus of control, but basically when you feel like a difficult action is being undertaken because you chose to, you can tolerate that difficulty much better than if you feel like you you were uh, forced into it or was someone else's decision. And now you're facing difficulty. We feel this intuitively, right? If, you, if you're doing something that's hard and it really wasn't your choice to be doing it, we get incredibly frustrated. So you have to drive across town to pick something up. You don't want to do it. Really, someone kind of dropped the ball and, and they were like, you have to, you know, they forgot something and now you have to return and whatever, go back to your kid's school or something to pick something up and you get stuck in traffic. It's like much more frustrating than... Uh, I'm going across town to get to the gym. I have, you know, part of my workout routine. You're frustrated about the traffic, but your this hardship was uh, based on something you were doing, you, you know, you chose to do. Or, you know, similarly, you go through a military, an elite military training. You chose to do it. You're doing it for a really good reason. You can put up with all the hardship and pain of it in a way that if you're encountering that hardship and pain because of a natural disaster, uh, so you're marching to get away from the, the hurricane, not because you're part of military, it feels much worse, et cetera. Um, so it's an important principle to keep in mind when thinking about doing hard things is we can do very hard things. 
but the rationale really matters, you know? So um, it's not, hard work is not just, we have some a certain amount of substance to, to spend and who cares how we spend it. No, no. The amount we have, the energy we have to spend on hard tasks is very, uh, very influenced by why we're doing the hard task. And so it's a hack in some sense, but also I think it's much more fundamental. People who do really hard things, you better believe they're tapping from that reserve of these are things I chose to do for good reasons. Because if it feels extrinsic, I'm making my parents happy or my boss put this on me and I don't even know why I'm doing it. You have way less to deal, way less energy to draw from. Yeah. Again, another another thing we see a lot of is I'm not happy doing this. My my mom, my dad are forcing me to do this. I really don't want to keep doing this. Um, so you're saying the the idea of choice is re- really key to longevity. Yeah, and and you were know, this. I, I really encountered this first was when I was writing those student books, and I was dealing with a lot of students. And, and I was dealing with students at elite schools. So I was at MIT at the time doing my PhD. And so I was dealing with MIT students and Harvard students, which were nearby. And I would, cons- I would just help students, right? And I kept noticing this phenomenon that I call deep procrastination, where essentially the student would snap and just couldn't do work anymore. Like no work. Like, your paper is due. It's worth half your grade. Like I just can't do it. And the professor's like, all right, I'll give you an extension, but you're going to fail this course if you don't do this paper. And they, and they have nothing else. They just can't do it, right? They just snap. And, and I called it, I, you know, I called it deep procrastination. What tended to cause it? Because it wasn't, it sounds a little bit like depressive syndrome, but it wasn't quite depression. It was different, right? It, they weren't ahedonic. They just couldn't do the work. Um, what was going on in a lot of these cases was the courses were very hard. They were under, because they're they at MIT, they're doing really hard courses, right? It's hardship. And they were doing them. It was like a major because their parents wanted them to do it. They were there because they were, you know, I got to grind through this so I can get this job as a doctor because that's what my parents want me to do. And it was a clash of hardness versus lack of intrinsic motivation. And their mind just shut down. Like, nope, we're not doing it anymore. And so then I invented this whole program. I, I called it the Romantic Scholar. This whole program to help sidestep that where basically I mean, in some sense, I was helping people hack their brains, students hack their brains, where, where I had them um, inject all of these things into their life that signaled to themselves that they intrinsically valued what they were studying. So it was things like start going to talks. Like when, when people come for, if you're a math major, like when mathematicians come to give talks, like go to the talks. There's no reason for you to be there from like a grade standpoint. It's not part of your classes, but go to the talks. Read books by people in your field, you know, uh, just for your own leisure. Like I, I read about these type of scientists I, or if I'm an English major, I read biographies of, of it. Um, find different ways to, and settings to do your work that's more inspiring. And, and I wrote this essay back then called uh, Heidegger with Hefeweizen. But I was like, go to a pub and have the book and there's a fire and, and, and have a pint. And, and in other words, like do all of these things because it will signal to yourself I like the life of the mind. I like academia. I like college. These ideas have intrinsic value outside of just grades and, and you know, what job is going to open up. And it was a inoculation against deep work. You, you, you built a lifestyle of, of enjoyment and gratitude and investment of personal energy into what you're studying. Suddenly you can study a heck of a lot more of that material without burning out and without procrastinating. So that type of hack, I think, applies for almost any type of work build a lifestyle around it that signals to yourself that I love this world. I take this world seriously. I value this world. I am gracious for the opportunity to actually be a part of this world to contribute something. We get a lot more done. 
I, I really love that. I think that's a, a really fantastic way of tackling it. Do you, do you think so? So what you're doing there is is creating the passion, like almost like developing that passion. Is there something to be said for going against? You know, if it was a parent suggesting it, uh, like being pushed into medical school or something like that, is there a thing against choosing something you're happy with in the first place, or do you still think developing yeah. it's well, worthwhile? Yeah, and this is really important because it, it, major switching was actually the the very first exposure I had to sort of passion and follow your passion. It was the seed that was planted that led to that book eventually so good they can't ignore you. Because what I was observing, one of the things I was observing is people were switching their majors a lot. And, and it felt very disastrous to me because they would switch their majors usually in their third year of university. I was like, why, why is everyone switching their majors? Like it's a real problem, right? Because you, you, you don't really have enough courses. It, it, it made things very difficult, right? Actually, the issue there was they had too ingrained. So basically what I'm going to do here is I'm going to caveat the word passion here because they had actually too ingrained this idea of intrinsic passion. And so they were applying this to majors and saying, okay, if I chose a major that matches my passion, I should enjoy it. So what happens when you get to your third year of university, you're done with the intro courses, you're in the upper level courses, they're hard. Hard stuff's not enjoyable, right? And that would freak them out. And they say, oh, this must not be my passion. So let me switch majors, right? The, the, the feeling of discomfort threw them off because they had this mental model of you're wired to do one thing. If you're doing it, you will just always feel this real motivation for it. So it was actually an application of, of passion thinking causing trouble. So I'm going to caveat that what I'm really arguing for, it's not so much to get away from this notion like you're wired for a particular major. And the way you'll know that you chose the right thing to study is that like you'll feel really good. And if you chose the wrong thing, it'll feel hard and you won't want to do it or something. You got to get rid of that mental model. And instead, what we're doing with intrinsic, extrinsic motivation hacking is it's not that there's one thing you're supposed to do. It's not a wrong major or a right major. There's a wrong motivation and a right motivation. So you're actually right. It is, it is you need to feel as if you are the autonomous author of what it is you study. And it could end up being the same thing your parents want you to study, but you have to get there on your own. That's what matters, especially at that early level, because 19-year-olds are not wired for a particular liberal arts major that happens to be available. There's no genetic marker that pushes us towards mathematics versus economics versus English. That's not really the issue here. It's motivation. If you feel like I'm in, I want to make this a part of my life. I've chosen going it. I know it's going to be hard. I'm surrounding myself with it. I'm reading books about it. I'm going talks to it. I love the challenge of trying to develop this intellectual expertise. I don't know if you're wired for that or not, but if you have that right motivation, you're going to be much more successful than if you if you come into it with, I don't know, um, my parents want me to be the doctor, so uh, I guess I'll do pre-med, right? So I don't know if that distinction makes sense, but I think it's important once, uh, especially that early in your life with such little experience, shift from passion to psychology, really. That's probably the right mental model. No, I, th I think that's fantastic. And then linking on to that, um, just in, in careers, we... You know, again, in our space, we see quite a lot of um, love what you do, find your passion, you'll never work a day in your life. And I feel that people get hit that brick wall again with that, where they've romanticized the idea of what this is going to be like. Um, I mean, what's your, what's your thoughts on, is, is there something you could work in and not feel like you've got something hard to do or work a day? Like, it, does that exist? Uh, you know, work is going to be hard, almost by definition you will occasionally get into a flow state and that's great when you do, but flow states are rare. 
flow states tend to be more in a performative state than in a skill acquisition state. So at some points when you're applying your skill, you could fall into a flow state, but actually a lot of what you do in work is actually building skills or honing skills or, or trying to make decisions, none of which is going to put you in a flow state that's pleasant. So it's, I think it's really important to understand yeah, work is work. It's often going to feel hard. So what matters is, and this is me the right way to think about passion from the psychological perspective, is you're motivated to keep going. You know, lifting weights, heavy weights is hard, but if you're a professional athlete, you don't read it as hard in the sense of, I wish I wasn't doing this. You read it as, I love the burn I'm feeling because it means I'm going after the thing I ca- I, that I care about. This burn means my muscle is going to get bigger and I'm going to throw that fastball faster. That's the mindset we want in work. Like, yeah, this is hard. I have to master this new whatever skill. I have to master this new software so we can produce this better video or something like this. And you're like, yeah, that's hard in the moment, but I like this hardness because it's part of this vision I have for building this um, particular artistic vision. So I'm glad that it's hardness that provides satisfaction. So I have, I have no, I do not like slogans like, you know, follow your passion, never work a day in your life. I think instead your goal is to build a working life that you can pursue with passion. That can be a source of passion, can be a source of meaning, can be a source of resilience. And this is something that is a, a multi-year project, if not a lifetime project. It's about how you approach your work, uh, not how you find your work. This is the way you should think about it. And, and so don't conceive of yourself as being wired to do this job. And if you match that job, you're set. Conceive of yourself as you're trying to build this masterwork that is your professional life. And you're, you're building it on the fly you know, as you live. And it's going to be hard and wonderful and rewarding and over time get better and more nuanced and more resilient. But it's all about focusing on things you think that matter, doing them really well, taking that skill, the leverage that gives you and saying what comes next and apply it. And then repeat, 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 constantly driving the structure you're building on the fly towards places that resonate and away from things that don't. Some days are going to be harder than others. Some places are going to come easier than others. Some things are going to be more successful than others. But over time, this is going to take you somewhere worth going. Absolutely love it. Thank you so much. Um, Carl, I, I, I just want to say, once when the world opens up, I'd love to do uh, come out and interview you and get something done. Uh, I feel like I could talk for hours, so I really do appreciate it. And uh, this has been one of my favorites. I'm still going through the book at the moment, so I'm doing I'm, I'm doing an audio book. I'm not the best at reading, so I like to try and preoccupy my mind. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that. But um, where where can we find the book? And I feel like it's a silly question, but is there social media or websites or resources like to find yourself? Right. Well, perhaps not surprisingly, given our conversation, I've never had a social media account, so you're not going to find me there. Uh, CalNewport.com. You can find out about the books. And I have a, I write a weekly essay there. I've been doing it since 2007. I also have a podcast called Deep Questions, where all it is is questions from my readers about all of this type of stuff. And we just get into it week after week. What about this? What about that? Uh, from in the weeds productivity, like I'm trying to time block and this isn't working to, to in the clouds thinking about my life needs more meaning. How do I turn it around? And so that's another fun place to, to jump into this type of conversation. Lovely. And I'll link all that down below. Thank you so much for your time, Carl. Really do appreciate it. Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you so much to Carl for doing this. You know, he's a very hard man to get a hold of. Uh, he doesn't do, e- e- well, he does emails uh, once a week, I believe, um, at the moment. He doesn't do f- uh, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And um, yeah, he's an amazing guy. And I, I offer him a massive gratitude and thanks for this conversation with us. Because after this conversation, 
we le we uh, launched a deep work zone in our building. So we have a deep work zone in the building. It's uh, where the editing of the the feature length documentaries goes down, and you're not allowed your phones in there. You're not allowed to do anything but work on the documentary in there. There's no chilling. There's no communication. You go in there and you work on the documentary. And if you want to do any of those other things, you come out of the room. There's a big sign on the door uh, that says deep work zone. Do not enter. Do not bring your phones. No phones. No this. No that. No social media. And I cannot explain the productivity increase we've had from that deep work zone. If anybody knows what it feels like to be in a flow. When you're in a flow, nobody's bothering you. You manage to get settled into your work. You're not distracted by YouTube or cat videos or your social media pages. The work that you can do in two hours is better than the work you could do in a day. And to me, that's been in that deep work zone. You just flow. And creating these areas where there's no distractions, no social media, no mobile phones... It's not about helping you get um, to do deep work zones. Like you, put, you, everybody has that skill. What it's doing is promoting that you are in deep work zones more often. It's about uh, making yourself more of a professional when it comes to getting into deep work zones and doing your work. You're removing the chances of falling out of the deep work. You're out of that flow. That flow is for some people is, is easy to get into. Uh, but a lot of the time when you look around those people's, when their offices and their rooms, they don't have distractions. They don't have the TV on in the background. They don't have these things because to get into a flow state, they need to remove everything. And the easiest thing you can do to get into a deep work zone is make sure you remove all the distractions first. But yeah, thank you, Cal, for all of this. And one of the tools that I have been using is my journal. And it is available at mulliganbrothers.com where you can get the journal, the not a journal. And also the new poster has just dropped, the Memento Mori poster, which is a poster to remind you that life is precious, that you are mortal and you will die one day. There's 80 years worth of little tiny boxes and each box represents a week and you shade in your life so far, you realize how much time you've had and then hopefully you get to shade in some more, but nobody actually really knows. Nobody knows how many more boxes we're going to shade in and you know, there will be a day when you don't shade in a box. And that's a powerful message for me every single day when I wake up. So yeah, the Momentum Mori posters are available at www.mulliganbrothers.com where all the profits go back into creating this content and help support us fly our film crew around the world to create these podcasts and the documentaries on YouTube. Thank you so much for watching. You can head over to youtube.com um, and search Mulligan Brothers for our YouTube videos or head over to Instagram at Jordan Mulligan Brother and at Mulligan Brothers to see what we get up to on a day-to-day -day basis. Anyway, have a blessed and productive day, and I'll see you in the next one. Peace.